Acts chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, and then chapter 9, 1 through 31. This is the word of the Lord. On that day, the day of Stephen's death, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, and they mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Then in chapter 9, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way or were Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. And so the men led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he didn't eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. But Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to your people in Jerusalem. He has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest everyone who calls on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim the name, to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And at once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that he is, that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned about, of their plan, 
Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And when Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him too, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and he debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And and then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. Thank you for your son, uh, for the reality that you don't change no matter how we define you, uh, and that you want us to know who you are. I pray that these words that everyone I'm about to hear tonight, that your spirit is moving through them and that your spirit is moving in these people so that they can hear and receive them uh, as you reveal to us who you are. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do y'all remember those uh, Uncle Drew commercials a while ago? I need, I need some crowd participation. Y'all, y'all actually remember? Yeah, Kyrie Irving, for those of you who don't know, is a famous NBA basketball player. He's going to be a huge future Hall of Famer. Would get a makeup team to come and dress him up as an elderly man, a character called Uncle Drew, and he would show up to some neighborhood park, and he would, would just he'd play the part. He'd act frail. He'd miss jump shots. Um, no one could really tell that he was a future Hall of Famer on the court. No one was really paying him much attention. He'd try to get involved in pickup games. Um, and the people would, they, they'd appease the old man. I mean, you're not going to say no to him. I mean, he's not going to be able to hang in the game for long, so it's not going to ruin much of your fun. And then as soon as the game started, Kyrie turned it on. Uh, and they were frustrated. <laughs> they were ragging on each other because they were getting schooled by a grandpa. Uh, they were all sorts of confused. And then once the game was over, he'd eventually reveal that he's Kyrie Irving. And suddenly they all know exactly who he is. And they're taking pictures, asking him for tips on their jump shot. They're playing him in one-on-one. And they're more than happy to play with him. And, and sure, they were interacting with him purely based off of who they understood him to be. It was affecting how they were relating to him. And the, who you think a person is directly affects how you relate to that person, right? It's a pretty simple concept. Who you understand a person to be dictates the amount of influence they have on your life, why you treat them the way they do. And the, the same's true about Jesus. Who you think he is, the way you're treating, relating to Jesus right now is a direct result of who you think he is right now. H- how you talk about him, how and what you learn from him, the influence you let him have on you, how, how his name makes you feel, how you even interact with people who talk about him. It, this, it's pretty simple to think about all this. I'm about to ask a few questions. Think about what your answer is to these questions. Is Jesus relevant to my life and my story or irrelevant? That has an influence on how you interact with him. Does he get authority in my life or do I have authority? Is he enough 
or do I need him plus a bunch of other stuff to be okay? Who do you think Jesus is? And but before you're really quick to answer all these questions, a lot of y'all have the same background as I do. We grew up in the church, we grew up in the South, we all have thoughts about who Jesus is, and we're quick to answer these questions a little bit quicker than we should be with a bunch of parroted, memorized answers about who we're supposed to think Jesus is, right? But think, be honest with yourself right now. Who do you think Jesus is? How do you treat him? If, you were to come back, if he were to come back down from heaven today, are you confident you would recognize him? How would he care for the UGA community? How would he care for you? Does he care about you? Do you believe that? How do you really respond when you read something Jesus said and it confronts something about how you behave? When it confronts something you believe, a political position you have? Are you the authority on all these answers? Uh, When you read the Bible, is it telling you who Jesus is, or are you telling it who Jesus is, bending it to who you think he is? How do you perceive Jesus? Maybe the reason why parts of the Bible are difficult for you to understand and wrestle with, it might be the reason you're not even opening the Old Testament, right? Do you see what I'm saying? Who you believe Jesus is directly shapes how you're treating him and responding to him right now. This is why conversion into the faith always involves a confrontation by Jesus. When the Spirit converts a person, he confronts you with the most important question you'll ever face in your life. Who is this Jesus, and what is the relevance he has on my life? And while I'm talking about what's going to happen next, actually reflect on that question for me. Be honest with yourself in your head. Who is this Jesus? Who do I think he is? And let's see how this works out in Saul's life. How does Saul see Jesus? Saul very clearly thought that Jesus was a threat, right? We see that so much so that anyone that was bearing witness to his name needed to be silenced. But why? Let's take a few minutes to dig into why he saw Jesus as a threat and how this unbelief in Jesus affected how Saul related to him. Saul's a remarkable background, if you're not familiar with him. He, he, he was a Pharisee, which means he was one of the most strictly devout Jews of that time. He took the word of God very literally. He knew every word of the law and was confident in his knowledge of what it took to fulfill it. He had a great passion for God and was committed to obeying him. He was well-educated. He was an excellent speaker and was committed to teaching the word of God. He was confident he knew what it took to love God. He was confident in what it took to be right with him. Surely, if anyone was going to recognize God, when it came down, when he were to come down, and when it came to someone who was going to love him when he was face to face with him, it was going to be Saul, right? Listen to how Saul describes himself in one of his letters. He says that... If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He, he knew who he was before God, at least he thought. Uh, the, the most interesting thing 
I found out about Saul while I was studying all of this. I didn't know my entire life. I've heard this passage preached a bunch. I know who Saul is. I never knew when he was born. And it, it turns out that, it, it, did y'all know it was shortly after Jesus was actually born? That he was within 10 years of Jesus? They grew up together in the, in the same era. Given when Saul was born, and what we know to be required in order to become a Pharisee, and, and, and a prodigy at that, he was very well known. He was the next up and coming. Uh, he was the youngest at his time to have that kind of a status. And who we know Jesus was and what he was doing at that time, when we combine all this, we can assume some pretty interesting things about who he felt Jesus was. Saul was in his mid to late 20s during the same time period of all of Jesus' recorded ministry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was a little bit older than y'all. When we overlap their lives, we learn some amazing things. At time, all the times I've read this passage or I've heard it preached, I always thought that this was the first time that Jesus had ever, I mean, that Paul had ever seen Jesus, and that's why he didn't recognize him. Jesus had frequent interactions with the Pharisees during his time on earth. Jesus never sought to brainwash the Pharisees. He just simply was who he was, and they got to make sense of that and either engage with him or not. They were present whenever he would visit the temple in Jerusalem. They were present often when he taught. He, uh, they were all present, especially later in Jesus' life, uh, when they could not stop hearing about who people said he was, uh, what he was doing, um, this Jesus, and how he was claiming to be the Savior of Israel. Saul grew up hearing about Jesus and probably interacted with him, probably stood face to face with him many times. And we can infer a consistent pattern with him based off this to get to the point where Saul is right now in Acts 9. Each time he heard about or saw the person of Jesus, he had to actively decide that he could not be God. Why was Jesus a threat to him? Because Jesus' very existence was at direct odds with what Saul expected in the Savior of Israel. Saul thought he knew exactly what he needed to be saved. He had power, yes. His opinion was respected by the Jews, but Israel was still under Roman rule, and it was pretty oppressive. And he thought that the coming Messiah was going to put him into a place of power over the world, that he was going to flip the tables, that he was going to remain important and at the center. But Israel, excuse me, lost my place. (laughs) Uh, He didn't expect for him to tell him how broken and full of hate he was. He didn't expect that he was going to be told by Jesus that he was the most to be pitied. He didn't certainly expect that he was going to be told that he didn't understand the very word of God he had committed his entire life to learning. Who was Jesus to tell Saul, a prodigy in Judaism, by the way, that his heart was dark like all the other Pharisees? And even more so, who was Jesus to proclaim that he was the promised Messiah? He didn't look like royalty at all. He had no army to liberate them. He did not seem powerful. Jesus condemned the Pharisees. He spent time doing things the Pharisees would never think of doing. 
Healing people's actual physical needs here now, that's, that's not what the Messiah is coming to do. Uh, promising salvation to the Samaritans? No. And, and, and people were flocking to Jesus. And for Saul to admit, uh, Jesus was right to point out hypocrisy in his heart, that Jesus was God, would be to destroy the social standing he'd worked so hard for. The Pharisees felt their power wavering, and they knew they had to get Jesus killed, and they did. And I assure you that Saul must have had a word in those behind-the-scenes conversations. Are these thoughts of Jesus telling? Are they striking at you? Are they familiar with that confrontation that you experience? Once Jesus was crucified, Saul probably breathed a sigh of relief actually. He didn't have to deal with that constant confrontation anymore of who he was. But then his worst nightmare happened, and three days later, rumors started to spread that this Jesus actually rose from the dead and up to heaven, and Jews began leaving Judaism to become followers of Christ and his teachings. Gentiles began proclaiming the gospel. He could feel the power of his social standing being threatened again, and it actually brought him joy to fight the good news of who Jesus Christ was. Because once people would just stop talking about it, stop talking about who he is, he would finally be relieved of that stress, of that constant confrontation of everything Saul actually was. And this is where we see him now in Acts 9, gathering an army to oppose anyone who said Jesus was the Messiah. See, Saul attempted to make God his hostage, that he was a means for him to secure power on earth, to have some sort of superiority over other humans, to have some sort of worth, some sort of free conscience, and to ignore all the ways he felt so broken and burdened, despite all the anguish it was was going to cause him, and it was causing him. And the anguish is causing you if you're ignoring that confrontation. Because you see, that's not who Jesus is. He, is. he is no one's hostage. Rather, he is the creator of all things and he's the redeemer of all things. As Lord over the earth, he has a very personal relationship with his creation, including us, including Saul. And all those he's calling to himself, he is persistently confronting to show them who he is, and how great our need of him is. He knows Saul and loves Saul, and he will be persistent with Saul. And he knows Saul needed to be humbled in order to see him for who he is so the pieces of the puzzle can finally come together. So he literally stands in his path, reveals all of his glory, knocking Saul back so he can no longer ignore who this Jesus is, and very intimately, very personally, revealing that Jesus also knows who Saul is. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I've come to save you. I've come to free you of this burden. Why are you coming after me? And in this moment, Saul can't avoid the confrontation. Everything he knew about the world is just so evidently wrong. He realizes who he understood God to be was completely wrong. 
Can you imagine that disbelief? Have, have you felt that disbelief? When you realize you were wrong about who God was, and he's better than you imagined. He's more glorious than you've imagined. Um, to himself, he may have been like, surely this isn't the man that I've spent my whole life denying. Surely I couldn't have been this wrong. And in this moment, all Saul can do with his entire worldview shattered is learn. So he asked the wisest question he has ever asked in his life, who are you, Lord? For once, he was actually asking Jesus who he was. For once, he was actually learning instead of dictating and assuming. Finally, he has realized to actually understand the word of God and how it explains the world around him, he can't examine it while self-prescribing who he thinks God is. Have you ever been there? where you realized everything you knew about the world was wrong, realizing you have to reckon with who God really is, not who you think he is. That's an intimidating place to be in. It's disorienting, right? And I'm not necessarily just talking about giant macro-level conversions like we see here with Saul, where there's this distinct point in your life where before this moment, I rejected Jesus, and after this moment, I clung to him. That, that's not all I'm talking about. I'm talking about even micro-level ones. A, a, a lot of you are like me, and you don't remember a point in your life where you didn't have faith in, in Jesus. That, that faith has always been a part of your life, but there have been distinct moments where you learned something new about who God was where that has very much disoriented you and how you lived your life. Little moments down the road as you've learned more and more and more about who our God is. Like, for example, the first time you came to know God as a loving father rather than a disapproving, oppressive boss. That, that was a change, if you've experienced that. And conversions, both mass, macro and micro, they cause, for, for lack of a better word, trauma, right? It's that, to, to explain that better, it's that moment when the lights come on and all you can think is, I got it all wrong. And I, I don't know anything. Everything's actually better than I thought it was. Um, but I don't actually know. I, I know one thing and only one thing, but now I must rebuild my entire life around it. I can't keep living like I have been. It's traumatizing in the sense that you've been humbled from a place of self-righteousness and independence to a place of dependence in a way that you will never forget. You'll never forget how you know God now. Like, as if the uh, cruddy house that you've been living in and been suffering living in because you can't afford anything better uh, finally gets struck by lightning and burned to the ground. You're homeless, but the insurance company is going to give you a check to move somewhere else, and you, they give you a check for a million dollars. Way overshoots the value of this house. Um, and now you get to rebuild, and you get to start over with infinite resources now at your disposal. Because now you are in such a much better circumstance. But at the same time, your, your worldview is in shatters, right? 
how do you connect all the dots again? How exactly do you move forward out of this new understanding of who God is? You realize you need help to make sense of the world again. You, you realize, I, I need t- others to teach me so I can relearn even the most basic things, like, like who is God now to me? What, what, what is he like? How should I live? What is right and wrong now in this new worldview I have? Uh, and this is an interesting spot for Paul to be in. Uh, if, you, if you look back in the text, we see at the start, he, words like dependence and weakness and vulnerability would never have described Saul, right? <coughs> He's the one that is uh, the deciding vote in killing Stephen. He's the one that scatters the church out of Jerusalem. He's the one that's leading the charge of persecution. He's in control. He has the cards, right? He's the big man on campus. And he, he then, in a sudden moment, had to depend on the very people he was coming to imprison and kill to put his world back together, right? Ananias was the exact description of the kind of person Paul hated as a result of who he thought God was. And look at how Ananias responds and greets Saul. Saul is no longer a persecutor, but a brother. That isolation is resolved by a familiar bond that those who believe in Jesus Christ get to experience with each other. Saul's new brother restores him, gives him a place to stay and to, in order to come back to health and access to all the disciples in Damascus to talk about who Jesus is to him now and this knowledge that he's the son of the living God. You, you aren't meant to figure out how to live faith on your own. God knows that. For, for example, coming to, to go back to the one I used before, come and understand that God is also your loving father instead of demanding boss as a major shift, especially if you don't have a good relationship with your earthly father. That's a hard thing to learn how to navigate in this new world where you know what a father's supposed to be like and you know who your earthly father is and how you relate to God, how you relate to him, how you move forward. That's hard and it's not something you're supposed to learn how to navigate on your own. For me, Becoming aware that my racism was real, that it was in direct opposition of, the, of how the God I love has commanded me to love my neighbors, uh, people who reflect the image of the God I love and bear witness of his goodness to them and to the world was devastating for me. For, for six years up to this point, which it was 2016, 2016 was wild for a lot more reasons for me than an average person. Um, and um, up until that point, I had been pursuing a career in law enforcement um, from the time I was a freshman in high school. Yeah, so about six years. And I was seeking to serve my community. That's how I've been shaped. I'd always been on that track, certain that that's what I was supposed to do, thinking that I knew how to love my community that I knew how to do it well, and I knew how to pursue justice for them. And without ever giving any real thought to how the God of justice has a say in how I do that. It wasn't until there were riots in my home city that God graciously made me aware of my community's pain. 
about his heart for the community I was living in, for his creation. I cannot count from that point forward the dozens and dozens and dozens of brothers and sisters that I have depended on to repatch my world back together after realizing that I was so attached to racism. And brothers and sisters, I would never have loved had it not been for Jesus. Never, never even would have known them if it weren't for Jesus. I, I hung on their very word as if it was like just gold. My eyes were glued. They were getting bigger with each book I read, with each article, podcast, sermon, lecture I could find. I eat it up. I still do. That, that's the kind of change that happens when you accept God for who he is on his terms and learn. The most fun part of this whole story is God doesn't just teach us who he is and then leaves us there either. He invites us along in this mission that his glory can be known and to use the skills he gave us, who we are, to do that. We now get to join this God who we love. Jesus doesn't just collide with this rebel Saul and convert him. He he, he instead places him at the very center of his growing church, which Saul had been trying to obliterate. We see at the end of the passage that Saul's zeal for God had not lessened at all. If anything, the boldness had greatened, right? Saul is productive, fruitful, used by Jesus every day of his life moving forward. The, The difference... He knows who God really is. His passion has been properly applied. Jesus doesn't just tolerate Saul now. He draws him into the most intimate of communion with himself, along with the mission with him. Here's the other important thing to see. Jesus redeems Saul. He doesn't confront him and brainwash him. He doesn't obliterate him and clone a new Saul. He doesn't kidnap him and put another stooge in his place. And he redeems Saul. He makes Saul a new man. It's the same person. Think of it this way. Jesus isn't making a bunch of new things in this world, obliterating this old world and making a new one. He's making all things new. He's restoring things. And what that means for you, for people, is he's not making new people with conversion. He's restoring people through conversion back to who they were meant to be. See, Saul's education in the, what was an equivalence to a PhD in what we know as the Old Testament is then optimized, redeemed, and put to a life-giving end. Saul's cultural background is now optimized and put to good use. He'll, be the, uh, he'll end up being the apostle to the Gentiles, essentially anyone who's not Jewish. Uh, most of them were part of Greek culture at the time, so he began to go by his Greek name, Paul, and being mostly non-Jewish people ourselves, he's a huge reason we're even aware of who Jesus is today, 2,000 years later. 
you'll be hearing a lot more about this man the rest of the semester. He's a major player in the rest of Acts moving forward. You'll see how his temperament is sanctified, optimized, redeemed, and repurposed. His stubbornness and relentless diligence ends up being what gives him the drive to plant churches across the Near East, Turkey, Jordan, Syria, Greece, Italy. Paul is known as one of the greatest church planters in history. He ends up writing two-thirds of the New Testament, and, which announces this gospel you're hearing tonight. Through Paul's intimate love for Jesus comes Paul's writings to help us grasp Jesus' intimate love for us, enemies at one time, just like Paul. Every word you read in those letters that are just such dense, dense theology, it's just it's real personal information to Saul. His life depends on this now. From the time I was a freshman in high school, I had been considering a career in law enforcement. For a lot of reasons, God grew me to have an interest in matters of justice. This wasn't something that I was, I was converted and now I care about it. I've, I've always cared about it. Um, my, I had tons of family members in the military. Service was always a part of my life. I'm an Eagle Scout. It's a part of who I am. And... It was not until I came to know more about what it meant for the God I love to be the author of justice that I started to read about it and talk about it as much as I do now. It's exciting for me to know that I have the ability to let people know about the redemptive and restorative nature of our just God. And yes, I'm, I'm still considering a career in law enforcement. But that has even evolved over the last few years based off of who I've come to know him to be. Your, your major doesn't change because you're converted. What, what you do with it, your passions get put forward to letting people know who God is and what he's coming to do in the world. He, he doesn't make everyone's job to be a, a vocational missionary. That's, that's great if that's something that you're called to, but your passions matter. Your personality matters to God. Who you're created to be matters to God. Isn't that exciting that you get to learn a fuller thing about what you're interested in once you realize who God is? God is not at work to wipe out everything about who you are to brainwash you into being a well-behaving minion. He's at work in your life to restore you to who you were meant to be. A, a person in relationship with God and a light to the world. And then he then calls you to use your restored skills and personality to make his name known so that others can also be restored. What might this look like in your life? I'm about to ask a bunch of questions that aren't rhetorical. If you're a writer, write these down. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, you need to ask yourself these things because they matter. How might redemption repurpose your personality for the sake of Jesus' kingdom? How might he redeem your pains and your sufferings and end up using them to being life and help to others? How might he use your natural gifts and talents to be re-aimed toward God and away from self-indulgence? And th these questions aren't just, I'll, I'll figure out when I'm 30, I'll figure out when I have kids, when I'm an adult. No, they have implications for right here, 
right now because we're commanded to love our neighbor, and your neighbor isn't just the person sitting next to you in the room. It's the person who's still way over there across the street, still on campus while you're here, student at UGA, it's the people in your classrooms. They need to know about the restoration that is available to them if they just accept God for who he is and their need of him. He's given you skills to make that known to them. And that's important to consider. So to conclude, who, who is Jesus is the ultimate question we're asking here. The, the, the worship team's going to come up in a second and play some wonderful songs. They, they've been, the, they're going to put a lot of words to who Jesus is that you might not actually believe them. Uh, so take a second while you're singing them. Maybe don't even sing, meditate on them. Think, do how I'm treating Jesus line up with these words on the screen? How, how I'm interacting with him depending on him, actually lining up with the words I'm saying. If those things are true, how should I be behaving? He, so, to finish, who, who do I know Jesus to be? He's the son of the living God. He's the savior of the nations, the restoration of creation, the healer of the brokenness we experience. He's our deliverer out of slavery, and I'm for great, forever grateful that I am no longer his enemy, but rather his friend and his prized possession. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your son, for the life he came down to live, for how much he loved us as well to go through the brokenness of this world, to live a perfect life, to die the death that we deserved and to resurrect into glory and bring us along with them. Father, thank you for the hope that the curse will be removed from us. Thank you for the hope of Jesus, Lord. Thank you for the hope that we get to know who you are for the rest of eternity. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.